The scripture passage I wanted us to think about this morning is the opening of Paul's charming little epistle to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 1. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ. And it's right for me to think this way about you all because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to start this sermon off with a little quiz. I was going to ask you to raise your hand if you know the answer to my little quiz, but we really don't do that in worship, do we? We're not very demonstrative. Uh, Barbara Wheeler was president of Auburn Seminary in New York for about 30 years, and she says, I became a Presbyterian because it minimized my chances of getting hugged in church. <laughs> I know a lot of you are or were Presbyterians, so don't raise your hand. Just nod or smile at me if you know the answer to my quiz and the choir can't play because they've already heard this. What do these famous people have in common? In roughly chronological order, St. Paul, St. John of the Apocalypse, John Bunyan, the Marquis de Sade, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Adolf Hitler, Eliezer Wiesel, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, Nelson Mandela, Václav Havel, John McCain. And if you haven't got it already, this last one will give it away, Piper Kerman. Right, all these people wrote books from prison, or in some cases books about their experience of prison. Some of these books are wonderful, and some of them are terrifying, but they're all extraordinary. And we really ought to read books that come from prison. Someone said that the reason the Allies were so surprised by World War II is that nobody in the West read Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf, of course, you've noticed, has been all over the media this week because under German law, Copyright expires after 70 years, and so on New Year's Day this year, for the first time in 70 years, Mein Kampf will return to the public domain, and now they're going to publish a scholarly version in German. First time since 1945. We should have read it. 
Mein Kampf, as you know, means my battle or my struggle, but Hitler himself called his book a four and a half year struggle against lies, stupidity, and cowardice. Maybe if we knew that was the real title, we would have read it because it's all there, right? All of his titanic malice, the supremacy of the Aryans, and the stupidity of the communists, and the futility of democracy and the repulsiveness of the Jews. It's all there. We should have read it. Today in the United States, Houghton Mifflin owns the rights to the English version of Mein Kampf and, interestingly enough, also to the works of Winston Churchill. Strange bedfellows. In the United Kingdom, Random House owns the English rights to Mein Kampf and donates all of its profits to charity. Do you know which charity? Neither does anybody else, because if we knew, we'd demand that they give it back. And by the way, do you know who owns Random House? Here's God's, one of God's nifty little jokes. Random House is owned by the sprawling German conglomerate Bertelsmann, which means that a German company publishes the English translation of a German book that has been banned in Germany for 70 years. That's kind of a pointless aside, but at least it's free. We should read prison literature. And so I'm going to preach a sermon series called Letters from Prison. I wanted to call this series Orange is the New Holy, but my staff wouldn't let me. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 of them, or just shy of half, claim to be letters from the Apostle Paul. And of those 13 letters, four were written from prison, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And I'm going to preach these sermons mostly from Philippians because it's the most fun and my favorite. And so do me a favor this week. Go home and read this little book. It's three and a half pages long, fewer than 2,500 words, shorter than this sermon. And also, I might say, shorter than a People magazine article and a little bit more profound. So go home and read this for me this week. So let me tell you a little, about, a little bit about Philippi and the Philippians. 400 years before Jesus and Paul... King Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, named this small city for himself. Its population is about 10,000, which means it's a little larger than Winnetka or a little smaller than Wilmette, but it had a significance out of all proportion to its size. The gold mines that made it once a bustling place were exhausted by the time of Paul and Jesus, but it was an important exit on the most important turnpike in the Roman Empire. 42 years before the birth of Jesus, it was at Philippi that Mark Antony and Octavian, in a famous and important battle, defeated Brutus and Cassius, those Republican senators who had assassinated Julius Caesar. So you could say that the smallish town of Philippi was either the place where the Roman Republic went to die or the place where the Roman Empire was born. Because after their victory, Mark Anthony, in a highly inappropriate assassination, fell in love with the Queen of Egypt and left his wife and children behind and sailed off, which means Octavian could take control in Rome and become Caesar Augustus, the first of 500 years of Roman emperors. All of this happened 
at Philippi. And in gratitude to the soldiers who granted him the victory over Brutus and Cassius, Octavian granted a bunch of his retired soldiers land grants around Philippi. So this town of Philippi was filled with veterans. It was sort of a sprawling VFW, Philippi was. That's the congregation Paul preached to. Because 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, this silver-tongued preacher named Paul of Tarsus planted this little church at Philippi in Greece, the first church on European soil, 50 years after the birth of Jesus. Paul's experience at Philippi didn't go very well. They threw him in jail there. If you want to know the story, read Acts 16. The church planting was very difficult. It was an extremely pagan city. Almost nobody was interested in Jesus. But Paul just loved the Philippians. And now he goes on after he plants this church to plant more churches across the empire. And 10 years later, around 60 AD, Paul is in prison again, this time in Rome, and he corresponds with his congregation. And so when you read this letter, remember that it was written from the monotony of a prison cell. Paul's in jail in Rome. He doesn't know whether his imprisonment will end in freedom or in execution. Because here's the thing you see about uh, imprisonment in first century Rome. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't like Orange is the New Black where if you serve as a drug mule, they throw you in the federal pen for a year. Imprisonment was not punitive. It was simply a place for you to wait while you were going on trial. If you were guilty of a crime, they didn't put you in prison. They beat you or enslaved you or killed you. They didn't put you in prison. And so Paul's in prison waiting trial in Rome. He does not know if this will end in execution or in freedom. And so when you're in prison for being a drug mule or for preaching about Jesus, what's important to you? What do you think about all the time? Maybe, maybe your lawyer, I guess, right? But after that, maybe your family. But Paul has none. Paul doesn't have a family that we know of. So your friends, your faith, and your attitude. And those are the three themes that keep sneaking in and out of this charming little document of Paul's letter to the Philippians. They sneak in and out like uh, John Williams riffs in a Star Wars movie. And one of them, you hear fortissimo in the opening to Paul's letter, his friends. I thank my God every time I think of you for your sharing in the gospel from the first day till now, writes Paul. You see, here's the thing. It was his favorite church by a country mile, his favorite church. If God had said to Paul, Paul, you can have all the Christians in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia and Thessalonica, or you can have all the Christians in Philippi. Paul would have said, I'll take the Philippians. It was his favorite church. You know, you've read the New Testament, right? You know how mean Paul can be to the other churches. He's always nagging. Have you seen this film called Me and Earl and the Dying Girl? It's actually a charming little film. It's about Greg, high school, insecure high school student, named Greg, who spends most of his energy and all of his time avoiding contact with every other human being on the planet. Greg is the only student at his high school who's not part of some clique or other. And then Greg's mom, who, by the way, is played by Connie Britton, which is reason enough to see this movie, but don't tell my wife I said that. 
Greg's mom finds out that Greg's classmate named Rachel has leukemia. And Greg's mom asks Greg to befriend Rachel. And she will not quit till he pays a call at Rachel's house. And so Greg says, my mother is the LeBron James of nagging. Anybody relate to that? Don't, don't answer that. The LeBron James of nagging. You know what I thought of? I thought of St. Paul. He's always nagging his Christian congregations, Corinthians, you know, Galatians especially. He can be so mean, but not to the Philippians. This is the exception that proves the rule. I thank my God for every remembrance of you, for your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm bringing it up for you this morning because it seems to me that ought to be our prayer every single day. We ought to be acquiring the proper praise for those who share in the good news with us, the people we sit in these pews with every Sunday. And, you know, this sermon is already longer than this whole epistle, so i got to quit. But I want to tell you two reasons why I think we ought to be thanking God for those who share in the gospel with us. Stewardship is one. You know, we put that stewardship campaign to bed before Christmas. It's over. No big deal. But I want to tell you something about it. There's some good news and bad news. You always take the bad news first. So here's the bad news. On this date... Last year, we had 70 more pledges than we do this year on this date. That's a lot. That's 704 last year, 634 this year. 70 fewer, 10%. That's the bad news. Good news is that the 634 who pledged gave more money than last year. Fewer pledges, more dollars. So for those of you who came through, you really came through. And I thank my God every time I think about you for your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. More good news. It's not too late. <laughs> if you're one of the 70, we'll take a check or a pledge, either one. So that's one reason that's a good prayer for us to pray every day for those who share the gospel with us. And here's the second reason. Sometimes in our lives, it seems as if death is so close and looms so large, right? Thinking of those four young men who lost their lives this week, new Trier grads in an accident in Wisconsin that Joe mentioned in her prayer. We knew them, many of us knew them. And so I'm thankful for the Winnetka Congregational Church and for the Sacred Heart Parish and for the Jewish synagogue who embrace those broken families in their love and farewell their sons to the next adventure with God. What would we do without families of faith like that? I know this personally. My father died before Christmas my mailbox has been full because of you all. And many of the cards came, interestingly enough, from people who have recently lost their own long loves because you know what it means. And so it occurred to me, 
in the family of faith, we take turns, right? We take turns caring for one another. Sometimes you're the one with the broken heart. And sometimes you're the one who picks up the pieces and puzzles them back together with duct tape and glue guns. So that's the reason we thank God for everyone who shares the gospel with us from the first day until now. And so these words were written around 60 A.D. We don't know what happened to Paul at the end of his life. His biographer, St. Luke, is silent about Paul's last days. But Christian tradition has it that Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero in 62 or 63 A.D., two years after this letter was written. And so this is the last letter of St. Paul that has survived to this generation. For all practical purposes, these are Paul's last words. I thank my God every time I think about you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. What will your last words be? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.